Welcome to the Infertility Stress Podcast, where we talk about how to care for your mind and your nervous system during your fertility treatment process so you can reduce your stress and anxiety and prevent fertility-related burnout. I'm Michelle Kapler, fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, board-certified reproductive specialist and feminist mindset coach, and you've got episode 63. Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I have a very special interview for you. I I mean, I love all of the guests that I have on the podcast, but Emily is somebody that I've really connected with. And I was on her podcast a few weeks ago, and we just had this amazing conversation about acupuncture and fertility and socialization and cultural conditioning. And I was like, of course, she's got to come on the podcast here too. So we're going to have a conversation today about fertility, shame, trauma, and a bunch of other stuff. She uses some incredible metaphors about ketchup and mustard and filing cabinets and brains, which you will, I'm sure, love and will make things very clear for you. But before I get into the episode and share it with you, I want to enlighten you with Emily's bio. Emily Ginn is a certified life coach and master's level social worker based in Austin, Texas. Her cognitive behavioral approach brings awareness, clarity, and support for her clients. Emily works with women considering seeking or undergoing fertility treatment who want to enjoy their lives, even in the midst of infertility. So that's Emily. And without further ado, here is our interview. All right, Emily, I am so excited that you're here to talk with us today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. After uh, the conversation on my podcast, I was so excited to get to, if anything else, just talk to you again. A hundred percent. I After we recorded on Emily's podcast a couple of weeks ago, I sent her a Facebook message after I listened to the episode. And I was like, just so you know, I have a bit of a friend crush on you. I hope that's not too weird. Can we be friends? And Emily was like, yeah, okay. Sounds good. That's not true. Hold on. I know. No, there, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Because I had been twiddling my thumbs since we recorded like, oh my God, Michelle's so great. I don't, I don't, don't come on too strong, Emily. It's totally fine. Just play it cool. Just play it cool. So no, there was definitely a mutual friend crush. So don't, don't try and take that away from me. Isn't that so funny and human and amazing? I, I just yes. love it. <laughs> it's perfect. So today we're going to talk about trauma and shame and all of that wrapped up in the context of fertility treatments. And Emily is an expert in this area for a couple of reasons. She's like a multi-layered expert. Um, (laughs) Not only is she a social worker and a coach, but she's also been through it herself. So let's start with just chatting about your experience. Tell us about your story and how you got into doing this work. Thank you. Yeah. So I think like all of us, the route to where we are is very circuitous and takes a lot of twists and turns. Uh, for me, so I started out in social work. I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in social work. And for the 15 years of my professional social work career, I worked in healthcare and behavioral health. So trauma, grief and loss, uh, crisis intervention, crisis management, Um, Those were a lot of the things that I worked on. And so in 2012, I'd been a social worker at that point for about, I want to say six or seven years. Um, And 
we, my husband and I had that sweet little conversation that I think a lot of people who experience infertility have, like, wouldn't it be so amazing if we just started having babies? Like, we'll just start trying and it's going to be amazing. Um, and then two years later, <laughs> I was, well, let me, let me cut a year later, I was sobbing on the exam table at my OBGYN appointment at the one year mark. It was maybe about 15 months in. And I was, I was telling this woman I had just met because I was changing providers. So she didn't know me at all. And I was saying, you know, we've been trying for over a year now. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's happening. I'm really frustrated. Um, I felt very, very out of control. And for um, a recovering control freak like myself, there's nothing worse than feeling out of control. And so we started down the, the path of the diagnostics. So usually the first step is the semen analysis because that's the cheapest and least invasive. Um, that was where we, dis- where we found out that my husband had um, low motility. So that is the speed at which the sperm either swims or doesn't. And for my husband, um, I, because of who I am and the type of relationship we have, I like to tell him that his guys are just standing around looking at each other because that's all they're doing. They're just hanging out. Um, and then within about six weeks, we also then found out that I had female factor infertility. Uh, the female workup for infertility takes a little bit longer. And uh, we identified that I had what was called a mucinous cyst adenoma on my left ovary. So if you've never heard that, that's a wonderful thing. It just means that my uh, left ovary was growing a very large cyst. And because of the large nature of the cyst and how heavy it was, I experienced what was called an ovarian torsion. So the weight of all that fell over on top of the tube and I had to have emergency surgery. A few months later, they decided to remove the ovary totally because it was just a diseased ovary. It was never going to not grow those large cysts. So here we are, primary or primary infertility. We've never been pregnant, male factor and female factor infertility. And um, by some miracle, with a less than 1% chance of conceiving spontaneously, we got pregnant with our oldest, um, who just celebrated his eighth birthday. And then as we kind of decided to continue our family planning journey, we thought that we were probably going to have to do um, some sort of fertility treatment. And we ended up doing four rounds of IUI that were unsuccessful. Um, And then about five months later, we moved into uh, IVF. We had a first successful round of IVF with uh, two embryos, the first one being our almost five-year-old. And um, we planned for a second transfer in um, the summer of 2020, which was unsuccessful. A chromosomally normal male embryo that, of course, we had already named and I had already envisioned his high school graduation. And so that was an incredibly painful time in our life, in our marriage, um, having this expectation. Whether it was a naive expectation or not is irrelevant. It was an expectation that we had that we were going to have our three kiddos. And to have that kind of ripped away was very traumatic. Um, and so we did a lot of healing work. And then the following spring, we decided, you know, we're, we're 
with as a low probability as we have, um, we want to walk away from this experience saying we've done literally everything we can. So we did one last round. We ended up with one, one chromosomally normal um, uh, female embryo. We transferred that in July of 2021. And in April of 2022, exactly 10 years from the start of our infertility journey, we welcomed our uh, our little caboose baby, our last baby girl. Um, and so, yeah, so around three years ago, I decided that because of how personal this was for me and all of the years of experience that I had had in trauma, grief, loss, shame, crisis intervention, all of that stuff, that that was really a space that I felt was missing those types of conversations in infertility. And so I decided to leave corporate healthcare because um, it was the pandemic and why the heck not? Just reinvent yourself. And uh, here I am. Here I am with IVF This now, two and a half, almost three years later. What an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And even just with your story, there's so much to unpack. I was like, I have to write that, that down and ask her about it and ask her about this. But first, I want to pause and talk about that idea of being a recovering control freak. I imagine that was a really interesting thought pattern or personality trait or however you want to look at it to have on board during your fertility treatment process. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and how you unpacked it? Yes. Oh, it's such a beautiful question. Um, so anyone who has ex experienced fertility treatment, uh, specifically IVF, because it is very logistically heavy. There are a lot of things that you have to do at a very specific amount of time, a very prescriptive medication regimen. It's almost like a control freak's dream. For as terrible and, and as um, as difficult as that journey is, because we get this illusion of control. Um, I think specifically the first round of IVF that we went through, I didn't. It didn't really register that that was what helped me feel safer in the process. It wasn't honestly until the cycle failed the transfer failed in the summer of 2020, that I really had to do some deep work on a lot of what I was grieving was that I thought I had control of the outcome. Even though I had been exposed to coaching, I was actually a certified coach myself at that time. It really was kind of having the rug pulled out of me in a couple of different ways, not having the transfer be successful and having to confront this idea of like, Oh yeah, everything that my, my coaching mentors have talked about, what we can control, you know, our, our thoughts, our feelings and our actions. I walked into this with a belief that I could control the outcome if I did all of those things. And I think that is one of the most painful and challenging aspects to grapple with, with fertility treatment is I can check literally every box. I can do my medication perfectly, which FYI, I did not. Um, I can go to every single um, doctor's appointment. I can take all my supplements. I can do all of the things that people tell me I can do to be successful and still not be successful. My inputs did not equal the outcome that I wanted. And so that was very much a deconstruction of that kind of um, control freak uh, identity that I had. And, you know, what I didn't realize 
then that I realize now is a lot of my reactivity around when I didn't feel controlled, when I would lash out at people or when I would get super frustrated or something like that came from that need for control. And so that was a large part of deconstructing. And that's something that I'm still working on is, is responding versus reacting. That all sounds very beautiful and horrible and very human all at the same time. It was so messy, so messy, <laughs> but beautifully messy because now I can get to a place where um, for this particular journey, I'm still a somewhat reactive person because I'm human and working through all this stuff. But particularly with my relationships, I focus on repair now as opposed to trying to manage myself all of the time. So if I bark at my husband or if I bark at my kids, the the repair is the thing that I really focus on while I'm doing the other work. That is so juicy. And I want to make sure that we come back to that later because I think it's a really important aspect of allowing our humanness to discuss that idea. But something kind of sparked my, not my curiosity, I kind of made a connection as you were talking about that, where there's this I guess, conflict that you came up against where there's this idea that you should be able to control your body and your health outcomes and you come into the situation where you can't. And I would say that that's a universally human theme, not necessarily in the context of infertility, but everybody kind of has that thing with their bodies that inevitably they'll end up coming face to face with that idea that they don't always work the way that we want them to. And I think that in a lot of ways, Culturally speaking, and we're talking about North American culture, obviously, because we both live in North America, but there's a lot of ways in which that is that experience is dismissed as unimportant or far, formative part of the process. But I would think that that in and of itself can be traumatic. So to bring it back to that idea of talking about trauma and shame, do you want to go into that a little bit? Do you want to talk about that? Absolutely. I would say that it's to tack onto what you were saying that will lead into shame is that it's not, it's, it's dismissed on one hand, but it's also almost an accepted part of a journey whenever something is um, outside of alignment, um, particularly with our bodies. So if I had a nickel for every time I heard my body is not doing what it was designed to do. I would be recording this podcast on a beach in Bali because I would have that much money. And that, that I think is one of the most um, predominantly shame inducing beliefs that we as women or um, uh, women facing individuals, peoples with uteruses, what, however you want to describe it, someone who is wanting something so desperately and it, it feels as if, as if our body is against us that in and of itself is shame inducing. So the way that I kind of describe shame is it is in relation to a goal. So if you don't have a goal for something, then there's really not an opportunity or or um, a, an experience of shame because it's not necessarily important to you. It might not be unimportant to you or it might be neutral, but there's not a goal for shame to kind of counterbalance. So that's one of the most important things to understand about shame. Another important thing to understand about shame as it relates to infertility is that it goes back. Um, if you're speaking just from a Judeo-Christian perspective, it goes back all the way to the Bible, right? We've got 
Ruth. We've got we've got at least um, off the top of my head four biblically facing women who not only talk about um, their barrenness, which is what it, infertility was referred to at that time because we didn't understand there was a male factor in fertility. But um, when we understand the barrenness um, is that there was this longing that we couldn't articulate, right? Certainly that they couldn't articulate. But, you know, Rebecca, one of the characters of the Bible um, who experienced um, barrenness, if you can't see me, I'm doing air quotes, but, you know, she, 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 pled to God more than once, give me this or give me death. It was that powerful of an emotion for her. So when we're talking about one of the first books that has ever been um, translated, if, if it goes back that far, that belief didn't just arise with Ruth or Rebecca or Sarah or anybody else. That has been a pervasive thought process for us since the, the beginning of man. And if you, you have to think about the idea that for our tribe's survival, it was believed that, you know, that bearing children was entirely the woman's responsibility. So if a, wouldn't, a woman couldn't do that, they were either labeled barren or they were kicked out of the tribe, which almost meant certain death back then. So you're either ostracized or you're dead if you could not have children. So shame can go back that far. And although our cultural understanding and our medical terminology for some of these things have rapidly changed, particularly over the last 50, 60 years, this belief system that this is what our bodies were designed to do, as if that is the totality of our experience as women, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And if your body, for whatever reason, or the combination of your partner and yourself cannot do this, there is almost no cultural space but to believe that about yourself. Um, so that's shame. <laughs> A very long-winded description of shame. Nope. Keep going. This is amazing. Okay. <laughs> um, and so when you add in shame to trauma, so for those of you who are not familiar with trauma, there are what we would classify in, in a broad sense, big T traumas, which are what people mostly associate with, with trauma, right? It's what the media has kind of pervasively explained what trauma is to us. So that is, you know, witnessing or experiencing murder, rape, uh, some sort of huge environmental catastrophe, uh, some sort of large physical harm, um, some sort of large emotional harm, right? Those are, those are what we kind of colloquially understand trauma to be. And then there are little T traumas and little T traumas are much more around anything that kind of overwhelms our ability to process and understand information. That's kind of the general description of trauma, but we need to understand the little T traumas exist because those are usually the ones that are swept under the, under the rug now, um, comparative to the big T traumas. So shame in the context of infertility, I believe is a form of a little T trauma. Now, what I also describe to, to my clients is that infertility, how I view infertility trauma is that it is a compounding trauma. So you get withstand, notwithstanding that you might have experienced large T traumas throughout your, your family planning journey, you're probably going to be experiencing numerous little T traumas. 
And little T traumas could be as, as innocuously seeming as sitting in your OBGYN's office and watching all of these pregnant bellies waddle in, right? It can be that, what we would not even consider to be a, a traumatic event. So we have all of these little T traumas and they just kind of build on top of each other to where our capacity for processing all of them, not just them singly, but them as a group is just so overwhelming. And then we experience similar side effects or symptoms of larger traumas, which is like disassociation, um, depersonalization, um, a lot of those things. So it can come at you from both ways, which is both unfortunate, but that's what we're here for. I love that. Thank you so much for such a deep description and explanation. I'm sure that a lot of people will have some light bulbs going on as they hear <laughs> Yes, And I think that I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I think that a lot of the time we can be sometimes almost somewhat aware of what's going on in our own brains. And then you're kind of adding that extra layer of judging yourself for even being bothered by something in the first place. So if I had, again, a nickel for every time I heard from one of my clients, like I'm such a bad person because I can't be happy for my sister-in-law who got pregnant, no problem. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The, the judgment that layers on top of the pain that we're already experiencing because our expectations are not aligning with the reality. Um, number one, that's already going to be painful. Outside of the context of infertility, you want a job, a promotion very badly, and that doesn't happen. That is a painful experience, right? So we already have the pain that exists when our expectation does not meet our reality. And then we add on top of, I'm a terrible person because I can't be happy for X, Y, Z. I should feel differently. I need to do this. I have to add this into my protocol or something like that. All of these are added layers that are just meant, have number one, have been conditioned upon us based on various different voices throughout our lives, whether it's media, diet culture, um, our, our family of origin, our epigenetics, it doesn't matter. Like all of these voices come into play for us. And that's why I think number one, it's really difficult to suss out um, who's actually talking. Is it Emily talking or is it six generations of Emily's family talking? Um, and so when we add on the judgment on top of anything else, we are creating additional suffering that is completely optional and completely needless. Um, I talk a lot about clean versus dirty pain um, with my clients, clean pain being the pain that is almost the price of being human. The, the normal expected course of your life, you're going to experience pain, whatever that looks like. And then the dirty pain is all of our judgments on top of however we're we're living, however we're experiencing, whatever we're going through. I think we have a very specific cultural belief that m emotions are monolithic, as if I can't, I'm, I'm sad for myself, and I'm a little bit jealous of my best friend who just, you know, got pregnant folding underwear. And all of a sudden, I'm a terrible person, because I can't, I'm not happy enough for her. Right. As if there's some sort of 
barometer for enoughness. I, I haven't found one. I don't know, Michelle, if you've been able to locate such a barometer. Yeah, not so much. No, right. It would be super helpful if we could. We can't because not, not one exists. Um, and so one of the big things that, um, that I like to focus on is if, if there's a modicum of excitement, then that's enough. And I'm sure because you love your best friend, there is a tiny piece of you. You can be excited for your friend and sad for you and want that same type of excitement and love and um, experience that they're having. And none of it means you're a terrible person. I love that. And I love just the simple addition of that word and because it means that we can honor all of the things that are existing all at the same time. I love talking to people about, um, because the way our brains are mapped out, yes, no, right, wrong, true, false, is what our brains understand. And I'm like, what if there was a secret third option? Maybe. There's more than three. There's always more than three. But, but just to like loosen the ketchup bottle, what if there was a secret third option? that you could feel all of them at the same time because you are an amazing human who has lived for however long you've lived and you get to experience more than one emotion at a time. I love that idea of the secret ketchup bottle. Admittedly, I have never heard that analogy used and I'm probably going to use that in the future. Done. I just want to take it back to one thing you mentioned because I think that this is a really interesting theme and I've talked about it before, but I'd love to discuss it with you. That idea of clean pain versus dirty pain. I love that we've discussed all of this stuff in a very theoretical and but yet understandable way. But could you give us an example of what clean pain versus dirty pain might actually sound like in somebody's brain? Yes. So one of the most recent examples I can offer you is from a client of mine who had experienced um, a very early loss. So she had gone through um, one full round of IVF. It was her second transfer. Her first transfer failed to implant and so the second transfer, she it did implant. She got the positive beta and then got the second beta, um, the blood test that tells you that you're pregnant, measures the, the human hormone. And then at the ultrasound, they found that it was um, what is uh, one of the types of miscarriages that you can have, which is called a blighted ovum, which means that it was just an empty um, embryonic sac. And of course, this is an incredibly traumatic experience for anyone to have. And she went, you know, we, that was something that we processed. And then we kind of wrapped up our work together. She took some, some time off from cycles. And then we started working together again when she was about to go through her third transfer. Her third transfer was also not successful. And she, one of the very first emotions that she experienced was relief. Okay. So we have the clean pain that we processed for her losing a baby. That is an extraordinarily painful time. What happened when that other transfer failed and that third transfer failed and she felt that feeling of relief? What she told herself was that that meant she didn't want it enough. She actually made the transfer fail, the implantation fail because she didn't want it enough, right? This idea of enough. And that that made her a horrible person and that she should never do this again um, because obviously she doesn't want to be a mom if the, her first feeling was relief. Okay. 
So that was the dirty pain that clouded up all of, of her experience, her ability to mourn a, a third or a second failed transfer, right? Her ability to mourn that experience. So what it really came down to was helping her to understand that that emotion, that relief was actually a really normal emotion to happen. She had experienced a miscarriage. So the finality of finding out that the implantation did not occur was, of course, relieving because now she didn't have to, right, in her brain, which she didn't quite understand, was now she didn't have to wonder, okay, is this one going to stick around? So that was our way of cleaning up that dirty pain, obviously a very abridged version of what we're talking about, but that was our ability to clean up the dirty pain so we could, in fact, mourn that loss of the embryo. What a powerful example. So just to summarize, the clean pain is the pain that any normal human would feel in response to something that is sad. We don't want to go around being happy about things going wrong or people dying or losses or tragedies. It's normal and expected to experience negative emotions around that. But the dirty pain is the part where she was telling uh, telling herself, this happened because you don't want it enough. You're a bad person. You're a bad mother. This will never happen for you. That's the pain that is awful and painful, but also a choice. Right. So it's the, it's the pain that we experience. And then the story we tell ourselves about it is the difference and always optional, always. Well, thank you for explaining that. That's really interesting. And I think that people will, again, have some light bulb moments in response to that. So I want to take it to a little bit more of a practical segment of the episode. So if somebody recognizes this pattern, where whether it's recognizing that they're experiencing trauma or little t trauma layered over previous big t trauma, or they're having some shame, or, you know, having this, a lot of dirty pain in their experience. Is there anything that you can offer um, to be able to start to unpack some of that? Big question, I know. Yeah. So the the first thing that we want to be really clear about is if the trauma or the symptoms that you're experiencing as a result of the trauma have become overwhelming to the, the point where you're not able to function in a way that you would like, then I would highly encourage you to seek out professional counseling services, therapeutic modalities, whether it's a licensed marriage and family, social worker like myself, a clinical psychologist, EMDR, which is a therapeutic modality specifically designed for processing trauma. It's um, EMDR is an acronym for eye movement desensitization reprocessing. So it allows you to, the, the simplest terms is it allows you to remember and process your trauma without reliving it. Most of us experiencing trauma, we end up reliving it, which means that we're still experiencing the same physical sensations that we experienced when it occurred, which actually impedes our ability to process it. So if you think about trauma as like just this giant blob sitting on the floor in a room full of filing cabinets, the filing cabinets are your brain. You can't file the blob away. So it just kind of stays there and gets bigger, or maybe it makes even more mess. So what processing that trauma in that form allows it to become more solid 
so you can file it away. Um, so that's the biggest differentiator is if it is impeding your ability to function in a way that you would like. If that is not the case for you, if you are able to articulate and um, recognize that your trauma on the surface and what's going on, and you're able to tell and narrate an experience without necessarily feeling the, the physical effects of it as much, then coaching is a really great opportunity for you to kind of take that trauma because what we can, what I can provide to you is the normalization of the experience, which because of the way that trauma functions in the brain, it almost one of the, one of the first things that you want to do in the brain or the, that the brain wants to do rather is like throw a fire protective blanket over all of your uh, executive functions. That's the, it, it, trauma is like a five alarm uh, fire bell. And so the, the blanket is trying to snuff out the fire, the emergency. And so what we're left with is kind of a, 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 a decrease in our executive functioning. And that's what coaching is really designed to focus on is more of that executive functioning, more of like, how can I plan? Planning for failure is actually one of the biggest things that I teach because I think that when we don't allow ourselves to go down a scary road safely, right? In a safe environment where you're emotionally and, and psychologically safe, then it, that is actually the time when we're more predisposed to experience more traumatic events because we haven't thought through how are we going to take care of you during that experience should that happen. Um, so I think, I, I hope that answered your question. <laughs> Yeah, it did. And also you continue to use these incredibly colorful analogies, which I just love. Thank you. So if you love analogies, go I'm find Emily and work with her. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> that's um I think I think that's a, a byproduct of being in a clinical practice. It and it, it helps me. If I can understand it and I can see it, then I can help it someone else understand it and see it. A hundred percent. I love that so much. Okay, so final question. If somebody is just starting out on their fertility treatment process, day one, maybe just getting into it, from your experience, both personally and professionally, what is something that you might like to impart to them? What do you want them to know? There's nothing wrong with you. I mean, if we could, if like TLDR, too long didn't read, there's nothing wrong with you. I, what I talk about is, um, you know, you're, if you're, let's say you have a diagnosis of like polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis, that is a diagnosis, not you. So I wouldn't tell myself that, um, you know, I'm a piece of crap because I have blue eyes. I had no control over it. You have no control over PCOS or endometriosis, or I had no control over whether or not my ovary decided to grow a mucinocyst adenoma, right? Like, this is just what is going on. And then I have never heard a thought from a client that I had never heard before or had thought myself. So I guarantee you whatever is going on in your brain is completely normal. Now, we put a lot of mustard on a lot of our thoughts. We make them really important. We make them really dramatic. I mean, like you're reading a Stephen King novel that that level of drama and terror. And so if it were anything other than there's nothing wrong with you is maybe don't take your thoughts as seriously 
because it's not, they're not really that serious. They feel serious. They feel big. They feel huge. But if we were to really dissect them, it really comes down to the story that you're trying to tell yourself, which never equals the reality of what's going on. So good. So well said. And you managed to use another condiment analogy. One more. <laughs> more mustard. More mustard. I wanted I wanted to have a, a bell that we could ding for every analogy that I got. Boom, right there. Ding. So good. I just love that. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on. This was a great conversation. And I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. I absolutely adore you. So I'm so glad we get to have this. So that was my interview with Emily. I realized as we hung up on our Zoom call that I forgot to ask her how people can find her. So I want to take a minute and mention that now. She is on Instagram under at IVF This Coaching, and she also has a podcast called IVF This. And our conversation from a couple of weeks ago is also a must listen. So make sure you search for that. We're talking about acupuncture and all things fertility there. And I believe her website is ivfthiscoaching.com. And I will make sure that I put all of that in the show notes for you to find easily. That's going to be it for me this week. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you've got this, my friend. If you are loving what you're learning in the podcast, you've got to check out the Pineapple Collective. It's my monthly group coaching membership where we take this work to the next level so you can learn to manage your mind and actually rewire your brain to reduce stress and anxiety and avoid emotional burnout during your fertility treatment process. Head to michellecapley.com forward slash pineapple to sign up today. I can't wait to see you there.